Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Now, what a privilege it is just to gather in the presence of the Lord and just to worship Him. It's a great, awe-inspiring God. As we read in the call to worship, it just hit me this morning. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea He made and the dry land He formed. And even though this is this all-powerful God, He is a personal God that we are His people, the sheep of His pasture, and that He sent His Son to die and redeem us. So what, a, what an amazing truth. Let's pray, Lord. Thank You for this glorious gospel. Thank You for Your Son that redeemed us by His precious blood and bought us and set us free from the bondages of sin that satisfied the wrath of God, the judgment that was to come, and that we have been accepted, we've been reconciled, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what your Son has done. Lord, and I do pray that these truths will not just be something we understand intellectually, but that's something that we will experience and that by faith, as we find ourselves living in a world full of sorrow and suffering, that we would cling to it and experience joy. For our joy is not in this world. When the things of this world, our joy is in you. And Lord, as, as, as much as I try to proclaim this truth, I can't make people understand. But you've given us your spirit so, Holy Spirit, can you open up our eyes, open up our ears, our hearts, and our minds? Can we taste? Can we see and hear and experience that the Lord is good? May we walk out of here in awe of this incredible gospel, the good news of what you have done on our behalf. And for those who do not believe, Lord, I pray that you would convict them. May they feel the weight of their sins, knowing that they have sinned against a holy God. And you've not given them what they deserved, but you sent your son to die in their place. And may they look to you, Lord Jesus, and trust you, believing that the work you've done for them is sufficient. And for us who are in Christ, may our hearts be encouraged. May we be captivated by you as we run this race. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, it says turn to John. We're in John uh, 16, uh, verse 16, as we're continuing our series through the gospel of John. And so what's been happening is obviously Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his upcoming departure. And we see that these disciples are filled with sorrow, mingled with fear and anxiety as they looked ahead. And Jesus spoke about that, the opposition that is awaiting for them. And in their sorrow, Jesus doesn't rebuke them because of their sorrow. He doesn't ignore their sorrow, but rather what he does, he gives them words of comfort in their sorrow. 
He tells them that it's for their benefit that he is leaving because when he leaves, he'll send the Holy Spirit. And that sentence has so much meaning to it where basically Jesus says, in your sorrow, be comforted because when I'm leaving, I am working for you because I'm going to the Father and the way to the Father is through the cross. And when I'm with the Father, I'll send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to work for you. He is going to continue my ministry so you will not be alone. And so the Lord comforts them in their sorrow. And now we get to the end of chapter 16. And this is basically the last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples before his death. Because in chapter 17, he prays, and so he, he, the, the time is drawing near. Jesus is soon going to breathe his last breath while he hangs on the cross. And the news that the disciples are receiving is bad news for them. They're filled with sorrow, but now they're also confused. Because in their mind, it is hard for them to reckon that if Jesus is a Messiah, a Messiah is not supposed to die. And so this moment is full of sorrow, it's full of confusion, and yet Jesus tells them, he says that their sorrow will turn to joy, and this joy that they'll receive will endure regardless of their circumstances. And so as we look at this text, like the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what kind of joy is it that in the most deepest, darkest, dire of circumstances, all of a sudden joy comes? What kind of joy is it that endures, that is forever? What does this joy look like? And that's what I want us to talk about. And I think this is what the text is showing us. So let's look at our text in John 16, verse 16. Jesus says to his disciples, A little while you will no longer see me. Again, a little while, you, and, uh, and again, a little while and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I'm going to the Father. They said, what is this he's saying? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. Again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, I tell you. You will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You'll become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So, so let's just stop here and unpack these verses and see what's happening. And I think verse 20, if you like, uh, marking your Bible really is, is our main verse that we're going to camp out. But the disciples are, are filled with sorrow because Jesus is leaving. But now they're confused because Jesus says, I'm leaving and then I'm coming back. Which implies, uh, he says in a little while, which implies he's returning soon. And so they're thinking to themselves, well, wait a second here. Is he leaving? Was he staying? What does it all mean? He's been referring to his death, and dead people remain dead, or is he not really going to die, and we don't have to be so sorrowful about this situation? 
Now, for us as the readers, we know the end of the story, and so we can kind of zoom out, and we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. In a little while, you'll no longer see me. In a little while, you will see me. And so we know that he's talking about his death and his resurrection. But the disciples doesn't because the cross has not happened yet. And so they're muttering among themselves in confusion. What is Jesus talking about in a little while? And Jesus looks at them, sees their confusion, knows exactly what they're talking about. And in grace and in compassion, he addresses the question that they're asking about themselves. And look at verse 20. He says, truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn. But the world will rejoice. You'll become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. I just love what Jesus does. He he doesn't sugarcoat it. He's not saying, you know what, your sorrow is not going to be that bad. It's actually going to end up happy. But he's looking at his disciples and he said that you will be filled with sorrow. You will weep and mourn and the world will rejoice. Why will the disciples weep and mourn? Why will the disciples be filled with sorrow? Because they will see their master's body hanging, cursed on a tree, and they will feel defeated and hopeless, thinking it is all over. And the one they love, the one they followed, the one they devoted their entire lives to believing who is the Messiah now is dead. And as they are weeping and mourning, what is the world doing? The world will be rejoicing thinking that they have won and eliminated the one who has caused all these problems for them. And they will be rejoicing as they celebrate their victory. But then Jesus says, however, in the second part of verse 20, your sorrow will turn to joy. So what kind of joy is this? Well, if you're taking notes, the first thing we learn what kind of joy this is is that this joy is revealed in sorrow. This joy is revealed in sorrow. Just like the road to glory is suffering, the road to joy is sorrow. And we see this in the death and resurrection of Christ, and we also see it in the analogy that Jesus uses of a woman giving birth. But, but, but let me show you how we see this in the death and resurrection of Jesus, how this joy is revealed in sorrow. Think about the disciples where Jesus says, truly you will mourn and weep. The disciples are mourning, they're weeping, they're filled with sorrow because they're watching Jesus beaten, bruised, and hanging lifeless on a cross. Their sorrow is watching the Messiah die as they weep and lament over his death. And yet the sorrow of his death is necessary because his death is the only way to save humanity. Without his death, there is no life. And the sorrow of death is necessary, but it is also short-lived. And the reason why this sorrow is short-lived, because Jesus will not remain dead forever, but will be raised from the dead and will appear to them. And when he appears to them, their sobbing will turn into shouting, their crying into cheering, their mourning into laughter. And the sorrow must take place 
for the joy to come. Just like death had to take place before the resurrection, so the sorrow has to come for the joy. There's no skipping the sorrow part to get to the joy. And this is how we see at the cross how the joy is revealed in sorrow. But then Jesus also looks to his disciples and he unpacks this principle by using this analogy of a woman in childbirth. Most ladies would would love to skip the nine months of pregnancy of excruciating labor just to hold a newborn child in their arms. But it doesn't work that way. You don't get the newborn baby without the morning sickness, without the swollen ankles and the uncomfortability and the contractions. And what does Jesus say in verse 21? I'm not going to get myself in trouble, so don't worry. Verse 21, what does he say? Look at verse 21. He says this. But when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. Here's the second part. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. And what he is saying is it doesn't mean that she forgets the pain, but rather the pain does not matter anymore because of the joy of this newborn child. The pain now is a distant memory and cannot be compared to the joy that she is experiencing. And this is what Jesus is implying. Your sorrow is real. You will mourn and you will weep. But your sorrow will soon soon turn into joy. And this joy will be so overwhelming that the sorrow will be a distant memory compared to the joy that you are experiencing. Why? Because in their hopelessness, in their defeat, Jesus has returned from the dead, which means he has conquered death. Their hopelessness turned into hope. Their defeat turns into victory. And so this joy is revealed in sorrow. But now we also see that this joy is, this, is, is enduring and it has this eternal security. Look, look at verse 22. He says, So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Again, Jesus reveals to them the reality of their sorrow. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to mourn. You're going to weep. They will mourn over his death while the world will rejoice, but their sorrow will not endure forever because Jesus will not remain dead forever. And when they see him again at his resurrection, their sorrow will turn into joy. But then he says this, no one will take away your joy. So not only do we see that this this joy is revealed in sorrow, but now the second thing we learn about this joy is this, this joy endures. This joy is eternal. It endures. It's eternal. And it makes you wonder because today, doesn't it seem like today that joy seems very fragile? Don't you find yourself like kind of in a whirlwind of emotions? One day you're on cloud nine. The other day you're in the darkest valley. And it doesn't seem much to take you from point A to point B. It seems like our joy is constantly fleeting as we're up and down with a range of emotions depending on our circumstances or what's been done to us, like facing unkind words or somebody being 
being dishonest or gossiping or slandering or betraying you or you facing cruelty or injustice or suffering and even the reality of death and you feel like joy is constantly fleeting and now Jesus is saying and no one can take this joy away from you and that this joy endures, what is he speaking about and how can this joy that he's talking about endure? How can this joy be eternal? Well, what is this joy associated to? Let's look at verse 22 again. When will they experience this joy? Verse 22, so you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. So in other words, this joy is associated to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. I find it interesting that he says, but I will see you rather than you will see me, because in the first beginning of the verse, it was all about you will see me, but now it says I will see you. And what this idea means in in this change of it is this idea of that you will be known. Not only will you know, but you will also be known. And as their joy is in the resurrected king who has conquered death, guess what Jesus can never do again? He can never die. And as long as our joy is associated in him who has been raised, who's resurrected, which means he'll never die. And if he can never die, that joy can never be taken away from us. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of situations. But the only way for that joy to endure, it has to be in the resurrected king. And this is what he's talking about. This joy that's revealed in sorrow, this joy that endures, is eternal, is in Jesus, who has conquered death. And now in verse 23, he speaks of joy in terms of prayer. And we've got a lot of homework to do here in in this verse and unpack it. Look, Look at verse 23. He says this, In that day you will not ask me anything. Truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, and there's our word again, so that your joy may be complete. So, so what does he mean in that day you will not ask me anything? I think the best way to look at it is in that day, which means after Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples, they will no longer ask Jesus anything. In other words, Jesus will no longer physically be present for them just to turn to and ask a question or meet a need. So what do they do? Instead, where do they go to? Who do they ask? The Father. Instead, now they have the privilege of going directly to the Father and to ask Him whatever they need. Like a privilege they never had before. A privilege that now has only been enjoyed after His death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And we're going to come back to this idea of the privilege of having access to the Father when Jesus unpacks it later. But then Jesus' promises ask, 
and you will receive so that your joy may be complete or be full. So which means like for us to unpack this passage, there's two questions we got to ask and try to answer. The very first question, I'm sure you've come up with it as well, is does this promise that Jesus is giving his disciples, does this promise mean whatever we ask, the Father will just give us whatever we want? And the second question is, what does it mean and how does prayer or answer prayer make our joy complete or fill our joy? So, so let's, let's ask and answer the first question. Does this promise that Jesus gave us mean that we can just ask the Father whatever we want and he'll just freely give it to us? In short, the answer is no. So how do we respond? How, 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 why is that our answer? I think the best way to answer any question with the Bible is to go to the Bible. And so the neat thing is, if you have a study Bible, if you have a Bible with all of these little, like a little middle margin with all of these tiny little verses, there's phrases that if you look up and then you, you see kind of the, the numbering, you'll see, oh, this phrase appears in other parts of the Bible. And so what we need to do is we need to look at these other, the, the phrases that have been repeated in, this, in, the, in the Bible and see what was the context of it. And so we see the phrase, whatever you ask, I will give you, and we see it throughout the gospel of John because Jesus has already unpacked this idea of prayer and asking in the name of Jesus and it will be given to you throughout the gospel of John. Now we don't have time to go through all of those verses but we're going to go through most of it real quick so you can write down the reference and then we're going to pick up some of the main elements try to put it all together and say what does all of this mean? You got this? Okay so here's, here's the first reference. John 14, verses 12 to 14. You can just write that down. John 14, verses 12 to 14. Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, that's the verse. Did you notice elements? Well, what are some elements? The disciples are going to do what? They're going to continue to do the work of Jesus. And what's the work of Jesus? The work of Jesus ultimately is to glorify the Father. And so as they are continuing the work of Jesus by glorifying the Father, whatever they ask for in this work to continue to glorify the Father, God is going to, to do. But let's continue. John 15 verse 7 to 8 John 15 verse 7 to 8 he says if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you want and it'll be done for you my father is glorified by this now we see how the father is glorified again that element that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples so we find out that we're called to remain in him by remaining in his word, remaining in his love, and the Father is glorified when we do what? When we produce fruit, when we prove that we are his disciples. And how do we prove that we're his disciples? By remaining in him. By, in a sense, walking in obedience. And then uh, last, last verse, and then we'll try to put all the elements together. John 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, looking at all these verses, what are some elements that we picked up? Glorifying the Father, remaining in him, doing his work, producing fruit. And as we do all of these things, we are asking and he'll be giving. So if you take all of these verses together, what's happening here? As we remain in him, remain in his word, in his love, doing the work of Jesus, producing fruit, what's the source of all of this? Like, why can we remain in him? Why can we produce fruit? Why can we continue his work? He's the source of all of this. The only way we can glorify the Father is because of the Son. So he's the source of all of this. And that's what it means for us to ask in the name of Jesus. It's not simply a mantra in the name of Jesus I am praying, but rather it is a reminder because of our union with Christ, just like the analogy of the vine and the branches. Because of Christ, Christ is in us. We are in Christ as we remain in him, abide in him, continue the work of him because of the work he's done in us as we walk in obedience as we align ourselves to his will and to his work as we pray in the name of jesus for the glory of the father whatever we ask for he will do in other words as we align ourselves to the will of god and that is to bring glory to him he will give that to us so it doesn't mean yeah just whatever you ask lord i need a new car but rather, Lord, as I'm clinging to you, Lord Jesus, you are the life source. Because of you, I can produce fruit. As I'm remaining in your word, I'm remaining in your love, help me to understand. Help me to continue to fight this good fight. Because, Lord, I want to give up. I can't continue this. I am overwhelmed. Help me to love this person and faithfully point them to you. In that, as we align ourselves to his will, what does he do? He gives that to us. Praise the Lord that we have access to the Father, that in our walk, in our struggle, as we align ourselves to his will, as we do battle against our flesh, against the evil one, we can ask the Father, and he gives to us. But then we find out that as we do, he says in the second part of verse 24, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. So how does prayer or how does answered prayer make our joy complete? Or maybe a better translation is make our joy full. Think about the disciples again. The disciples' sorrow turns into joy after the resurrection, after they are reunited with Jesus. So their joy is associated with Jesus. But then also in John 15, 11, Jesus says the very same phrase, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And the context of this text, again, is for them to remain in Jesus, to remain in his love and in his word. To remain in Jesus, in his word, in his love, we respond in prayer by declaring our dependence on him. 
And as we in prayer declare our dependence on him, he answers our prayer. And that answered prayer does what? In a sense, it refreshes our joy because it reminds us that we're in Christ and what he's done for us. Our joy is complete because every promise that, that, that God made to us is yes in Jesus Christ. And so it completes it. It fills it. And so if you're taking notes, we see that this joy is not only revealed in sorrow, it endures and is eternal, but this joy in this text, what we're learning, verse 23, 24, we learn that this joy is refreshed through answered prayer. It is refreshed through answered prayer. Let's look at verse 25. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I no longer speak to you in figures, but will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, And I'm not telling you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. So in verse 23, Jesus continues to unpack this idea of asking the Father and reminding the disciples that when we ask in his name, he is saying, I'm not telling you that I'm asking on your behalf, which is kind of weird because I thought he's a high priest, he's a mediator, but now he's saying, no, you're asking directly the Father, which means you have direct access to the Father. Now, in our minds, we're like, okay, well, what's the big deal of this? But just think about what a big deal it is for the people of God. From the pages of of Scripture, from the beginning of Genesis, the Bible tells us a story of a world that is broken by sin and us living under the imminent defeat of death. And throughout the Bible, what do we see? We see destruction, sin, suffering, death. We see the people of God have some access to God, but they have to go through a priest. They have to offer a sacrifice again and again and again. And every priest isn't perfect, and every sacrifice is insufficient, and every king is not a very good king. Some of them are better than others. Until there's this promise of a perfect king a perfect priest, a perfect prophet, one that would reverse the story and provide us access to God where we can return into paradise. And that's what Jesus came. He came to reverse the story. He would heal the brokenness that sin had caused and defeat the power of death. He would, in a sense, restore the relationship between humanity and God. 
and, and, and not would the, only would the disciples have access to God because that relationship is restored. But notice what the text says. Look at verse 27. For the Father himself loves you. The Father loves you. And so if you're taking notes, we, we see this joy is revealed and sorrow endures. It is eternal. It is refreshed through prayer. But the last thing we learn about this joy is that this joy is rooted in a reconciled relationship with the Father. It is reconciled in a relationship with the Father. Like, think about this. Sin is the root of all unhappiness because sin has ultimately separated us from God. And the only thing that is found outside of God is death and destruction. That's why, like, if you read the Bible, like, it's not the best story book for your children to read because throughout the pages of Scripture, what do you read? More sin. More death. More destruction because people have been separated from God and there's this question is, how do we get back to God? And no matter how hard we try to get back to God, we're constantly falling short because we're constantly returning to our own ways, bowing down to the idols of this world until Jesus comes and he makes a way and he restores us. Joy can only be found in a restored relationship with the Lord. Aside from the Lord, there's only death and destruction. With the Lord, there is life. There is joy. But the way to it is suffering, dying to self, surrendering, saying no to us as we cling and believe in Him. Look at verse... um, Let's look at verse 30, 31. The disciples finally say, Okay, Lord, you're speaking in plain terms. We understand. And now we believe that you came from God. And look at verse 31. I think it's very interesting. Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. It's kind of weird, this text, because it's like, okay, Jesus, you're speaking plainly. We get it. We believe that you're from God. And then Jesus kind of turns around and like, really? Do you really believe? Almost implying that, man, that faith is weak. And then he, the next sentence he turns around, and I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. Y'all all going to abandon me. You're going to scatter to your homes. The second I'm arrested, you're going to run to save your own lives. But then he goes and says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I don't know about you, but this text to me, like logically it's confusing. It's like, okay, how can you say you believe? Jesus says, yeah, you don't really believe. You're just all going to abandon me, but I'm not alone. Oh, but by the way, you're going to have peace in me because you're going to have suffering. 
In other words, what Jesus is implying is that their faith is weak because they're all going to abandon Christ. And yet, even in their weak faith, that does not stop Jesus from doing the work on their behalf. When does he go to the cross for them? When they believed in him? No, when they abandon him. Because it is Christ's work that restores the relationship, not their faith. It is Christ that brings peace, not their faith. It is the work of Christ that they can be courageous because he is the one who has overcome the world, who has conquered the world. And I think in these obscure verses, really what we see is that this gospel is the good news of what Christ has done. Not what they need to do, but what Christ has done. Yes, they are called and the responsibility is to believe and to believe in Christ and what he has done. But here we see the disciples, even in their weak faith, the Lord does the work on their behalf. And what we have to understand is, and I think it's hard for us in our culture because when we think about strong faith and weak faith, we always think about us and what we need to do. But the difference between strong faith and weak faith is the object of what that faith is in. And so strong faith has a strong object. And what is the object of a Christian strong faith? In Jesus and who he is and what he has done and so in these verses we see a mixture of their failures and we see what christ has done we see the peace that he is bringing we see the courage that they can have because of christ conquering the world and this is the message of the gospel the message of the gospel is not hey get your act together be better try harder don't be like everybody else. The message of the gospel is no. Look at what Christ has done on your behalf. He was the one who restored your relationship with the Father. He is the one who brought peace between you and God. And he did it by his death, by his blood, paid for your sins on your behalf, faced God's wrath on your behalf so that you can be restored. And so you look to him, you trust in him, believing that what he has done is sufficient for you. And so as we wrap up and we, we talk about application, what Jesus is telling his disciples, and I think what he's even telling us today, in a world you will suffer. What a wonderful message. You will suffer. I, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You will mourn, you will weep. You are going to go through some difficult times. Some of you are going through difficult times right now. And some of you are going to go through difficult times. And yet in that suffering and in that sorrow, you can have joy. And this joy is not some fragile thing that you have to protect. No, this joy endures. This joy is eternal. Why? Because your joy, this joy is in Christ. And what has Christ done? He is the one who has defeated death. He is the one who's defeated your enemy. He is the one who has reconciled you to the Father. 
And because of Christ, you have access to the Father. You have peace. You can be courageous in your fight and believe the truth because He has overcome the world. What a wonderful hope for us when we find ourselves living in a hopeless world in a world full of pain and suffering, knowing that our joy is in Christ. Can we just take a moment? Uh, let's just ask the Spirit just to take this truth and just, just hit it home in our hearts. Just ask the Lord, help, ask the Lord to help you not just understand it intellectually, but to, in a sense, experience it. Can you ask the Lord to help you to be captivated by Him? To fix your eyes on Him, for your joy to be in Him, and, and in, not in these fleeting things. And can you ask the Lord, like, I, I, don't, know, I don't know your life. Maybe you're experiencing right now, so or maybe even you're going to experience it, but regardless of now or later, can you ask the Lord that in, in your sorrow, that is real, as you're weeping and you're mourning, in that moment, can you ask the Lord to just fill you with joy as you're reminded, man, this death that I'm experiencing, this pain that I'm feeling right now, this betrayal I'm dealing with, my Lord has conquered. He has defeated. He has been raised from the dead. He is alive. And He is coming back to make all things new. Which means I'm not hopeless. I'm not defeated. Can you ask the Lord to help you understand that? Maybe there are some of you right now, um, you know, maybe all of what I said to you is just really strange and it doesn't make any sense. But there's a pulling, there's a yearning in your heart because you're trying to get your life together and you just feel like you're constantly failing. You feel defeated. And the reality is, no, you can't get your life together. You need a savior, and his name is Jesus. And he died in your place to set you free, to make you new. Ask the Lord to help you trust him and put your faith in him. Lord, can you do a work we cannot do? Can you open up our eyes? Can you help us to receive? Can you help us to believe? Can you help us to fix our eyes on you? In Jesus' name, amen. As we get to sit at the table,
Like I think one of the, the, the wonderful truths that the table communicates to us is that we have access to the Father. Like this table is only a shadow of the great wedding feast that is waiting for us when he comes to make all things new. And we're reminded that we get to sit as sons and daughters of the Father. We have access to him, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. And the reason why, why we do this every Sunday is not some ritual, but rather we are a people that are quick to forget. How many of you forgot that God loved you? How many of you are constantly forgetting that Jesus died for you when you're trying to fix your own life? Like, we are like Israel. We're constantly want to go back into Egypt, forgetting the God who has delivered us. And so the table is like, no, focus. Think about all the benefits you have in Christ. Don't look around. Look to him. And so this is why we do this table. We're reminded of the cross and the price that was paid and all the benefits that we have in him. And so as we distribute these elements, like this is what I want you to meditate on. Like maybe just focus on this one thing. I have access to the Father and the Father loves me. What a wonderful privilege. And it's all because of the one and perfect sacrifice that has been sacrificed once and for all. Jesus' body and blood on my behalf. You have access to the Father. The Father loves you. Your relationship has been restored. You have peace with God. Because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. His body was given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for you. The new covenant that you have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled, for us to have peace with you. And no one can take that away, for our joy is in you. And Lord, forgive us because we are a people that are quick to forget. We're quick to forget all the benefits we have in you. We're quick to take, forget the work that you've done on our behalf as we turn to others or turn to self. We allow circumstances and people to dictate our joy. And yet joy can only be found in you. So Lord, help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to look to you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to cling to the wonderful truths in the gospel and all the promises that you have given us to believe and fight to believe that what you say about us is true, that you love us, that we are your sons and your daughters. You care about us.
You invite us in to come to you in prayer and to lay our burdens at your feet. And you promise to answer them. And Lord, you promise that you are coming back. And so, Lord, all we're saying in the moment, we're saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make all things new. And in the meantime, while we're waiting patiently, help us to run this race. Help us to fight the good fight of the faith. Help us to fight the lies of the enemy with the promises of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our Savior?